So um, two quick prayer updates. Thank you for your continued prayers for Goldie. She is doing well. Um, uh, she still is on some oxygen. They're teaching her how to swallow. Um, she's never swallowed in her life before. Um, so that's going to take a couple of weeks. She'll be hospitalized probably a couple weeks yet. Uh, but we're so grateful for the recovery that she's making. And then uh, Barbara, our keyboardist, has been in recovery from some surgery, and uh, we're hoping to see her back here next Sunday. So thank you, Lord, for, for Barbara's good update. So how invested are you? If you have been invested in the stock market, the last few weeks have been a little crazy, haven't they? And uh, you got to see it go way down, and you get to see it go way up, and you get to see it go back down a little bit, and it's a wild ride, isn't it? Would you have pulled your money out as it went down? How many? No, I, nobody's going to say that, right? <laughs> I pulled it out, yeah. Um, so if you didn't pull your money out, why? Did you have faith? You had faith that it was going to rebound, turn around again. Jesus is telling us this story, and it's an unusual story. It's a, it's a continued parable of judgment. Last week I introduced that other parable about the bridegroom, uh, the bride, bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom. Today's is about three servants who are entrusted with the wealth of a wealthy man who needs to leave for a journey. And, and so this parable has gotten interpreted in many different ways. You know, one of the common ways that it gets interpreted is that people refer to this as the prosperity gospel. Now, I don't think this works for the prosperity gospel. In the prosperity gospel, you must prove your financial aptitude and giftedness with your own money in order to receive a return of more money from God. In other words, why this doesn't work is this is not their money. The landowner gives them all of his money and they are called to invest that money. In other words, this money belongs to God. So if you really want this to be the prosperity gospel, I think it has to start like this. Uh, you take a loan out. You start your own business. You don't break any laws, any rules, any norms. You invest ethically. You work hard. And you are rewarded. That might be an, a case for a prosperity gospel. But that's not what this story is about. Others have focused on this parable being more about working hard and not being lazy, which tends to border on works righteousness. Work hard and God will reward you. How many of you heard that when you were growing up? I heard that. I grew up in a small town farming community and uh, one of the things that they taught me was to work hard 
and that I would be rewarded. But according to this parable, if I'm going to get rewarded with more, then I'm going to work hard so I can work even harder. Does that make sense? And it often got turned into works righteousness, like how moral can you be? How free of sins can you become? The problem is when we become free of a particular set of sins that we've been fighting against, we often have another set that we're completely oblivious to. So is this parable, if it's not about the prosperity gospel, if it's not about works righteousness, what is it about? I believe that this gospel is about, this parable is about a generous God who gives us all that we have and asks us, how will you invest it? How will you use it? In the verse 14, it says, again, in the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long journey. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Does it ever become their money? No. It's his money. And they're investing it for him so that they can return it to him when he returns. You see, it all belongs to this man. Let's first talk about the long journey. It's harder to understand Matthew's version. We know that he used Mark and some of Luke as kind of the parameter, because Matthew comes later. Um, so Mark is the first gospel. So we believe that the writers of these other gospels borrowed from Mark, the foundational piece of this, and then Luke comes before Matthew. And so we have these influences in this gospel that I think are kind of interesting. If you go back to Luke, Luke tells us a lot more about this man. Matter of fact, Luke calls him a nobleman. And that means that he's not only wealthy, but he is well esteemed in the community, that he is uh, socially above others. He is a class apart. This is not just any ordinary man. This is a nobleman. And Luke also tells us that this nobleman was going on a long trip, a long journey. Why? In order that he could become a king. And so you had to be of a certain stature to become a king, a nobleman, a landowner, one who is socially above could become a king. So this is the way that Luke describes it in verses 11 and 12. You want to bring that slide up for me? Before, I, I guess I'm in 13 and 14 here, uh, 12 and 13. He said, a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then returned. And then verse 13. Before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. That's how Luke tells the story. The nobleman's long journey to a distant land to be crowned a king 
most scholars believe is a reference that Jesus is making to a journey that he is going to make. The journey that he is going to make is a journey to a distant land called Calvary, where he will be crucified, where he will be put to death, where he'll be buried, and on the third day he'll be raised again from the dead, and in his resurrection he will become a king. Interesting interpretation, isn't it? Through a shameful death, which Jesus will accept, he begins his long journey. Now, where he's telling the story and where he ends up dying is a very short distance, geographically. But spiritually, it is a long journey to, to finally to say, I will accept this death on behalf of you and me and everyone. I will go to that cross if it means that I can save the world. So in his resurrection, he is crowned as the king of kings, the Messiah. Now as Matthew tells us this story, that Jesus is coming again, it's not so much that he's coming as the king, as the resurrected king. Matthew seems to uh, focus more on the second coming of Jesus. And so what we're looking at in this particular parable is how will Jesus come to us the second time? And what is he asking for when he comes? What will the man find on his return after doing all, all of his work, after giving all of his riches, all of his wealth to those he entrusted it to do? What will they have done with it? How will they have invested it? He entrusted his money to his servants while he was gone. And one of the things that we learn is that it was a lot of money. It was a lot of money. In the Greek text, the word that gets translated here as bags of silver is actually the word talent. And talent had a particular meaning to it. Talent was 10,000 denarii. Now, what is a denarii? The, that's the plural. The, the singular would be denarius. Um, that denarius would be worth about a day's wages. So a talent was worth 10,000 of day's wages. It's a lot of money. So I did a little calculation, and if you were to take a look at the cross-section of the United States today, the, uh, the average daily wage for workers in the United States is $200 a day. So you take that, Multiple by 10,000, you've got $2 million. So each talent that he gives would be valued at $2 million. So the man who gets five talents is entrusted with $10 million. See what I mean? This is a lot of money. 
Let's say that you were given a million dollars to invest. Where and how would you invest it? I remember having a conversation with a board member years ago. It was probably before we even built the school. Maybe it was right after we built the school. And we didn't have any money. And uh, in those years, it wasn't um, unusual for us to have a year where we, where we would end up like 30% plus behind on our budget. And when, when that type of stuff happened, it really upset the financially astute members of our board. And I can remember having a conversation with this board member about, um, well, what if somebody gave us a million dollars? And his comment to me was, Steve, we, we wouldn't be able to accept it. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, we don't, we don't know how to manage it. We, we got to figure out how to manage what we have before we begin asking for lots of money. Thankfully, we have had some very wise board members over the past years. And it is always still a little, a little bracing to see the budget. See, we operate as one, what the church and the school. And, um, you know, in the early years, the school was having difficulties making it, so the church helped the school. The last several years, the church has had more difficulties, and so the school has been helping the church. But it's a big budget, at least for a pastor from small-town America. And, you know, when I, when I think back to my friend's comment, I think he was right. At that point in time, we didn't know how to manage it. But thankfully, we've had some very wise board members who have put us on a very good path. So today we could accept your million, million dollar gifts. <laughs> you were wondering where that was going, weren't you? What if Jesus wasn't referring to actual money when he told this parable? What if he used the metaphor to connect the people that he was entrusting with what was really important to him? What if Jesus was referring to spiritual gifts, for instance? I mean, God generously gives us spiritual gifts. In our baptism, I believe we receive the Holy Spirit, and when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive spiritual gifts from God. In verse 15, the way Jesus teaches it is that they're giving out five talents, two talents, one talent, and he says this, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. Dividing it in proportion to their abilities. So it's based upon your ability, on your spiritual ability, on your spiritual gift. What if, what if we interpret it that way? I mean, I have the gift of teaching. When I do those spiritual gifts tests, that's what always comes to the top. 
Alex is an evangelist. I love it. Bree has the gift of pastor. She's our office manager. Phyllis Ostrand, everybody knows Phyllis is one of our most profound prayers in the congregation, but she actually is a prophet. She'll come up and tell you what God's been speaking to her. And I love that. You see, we, we have these spiritual gifts. And how are we using our spiritual gifts? What is your spiritual gift? And how are you using that? And just because, for instance, that I might have the gift of teaching, does that mean I don't have to worry about the other spiritual gifts? Shouldn't I be trying to lift up my other gifts that I'm not so strong in? Well, some scholars believe that this could be a parable about spiritual gifts. But what if Jesus wasn't speaking about money or material things or even spiritual gifts because those are all things that we have, right? We have money, we have materialism, we have spiritual gifts. These are all gifts from God. Let me throw out another idea. I learned this one from uh, an old Anglican priest, Robert Farrar Capon, in his book, Parables of Judgment. He said that the crux of this parable seems to be about the difference between the good and faithful servant and the wicked servant. The wicked and lazy servant is how he describes him. Good and faithful, wicked and lazy. And he said the crux of it is that they have put their trust in different things. One has put their trust in faith. The other has put his trust in maybe we could call it earthly wisdom, in his self, in his fear. How do I survive in the midst of this fear? Maybe it's prudence. But what if Jesus was referring not to our gifts, but to his gifts, to his generosity? What if he was talking about his grace, his forgiveness, his salvation, his love, his amazing grace? What if Jesus was talking about that? What if he gave us, his servants, his church, what if he gave us all of his resurrected love and forgiveness? And when he comes again, what if he is to ask us, how did you do in investing my love? How did you do in investing my grace? How much forgiveness did you show? How much love did you share? How much salvation did you show people? Maybe Judgment Day is not so much about wealth or money or even spiritual gifts. Perhaps it's more about God's gifts. God's love and forgiveness.
and eternal life. How are we doing as a church with investing those gifts so that they can grow in our community, so that they can expand, so that they could move, create a movement of God? We have some missional work through which we are trying to do this. Our preschool is a missional outreach to share the love of Jesus Christ with children and their families in our community. How are we doing that? We should probably be asking the school, shouldn't we? We should probably be asking some of the parents. We have a missional community every Tuesday in the mornings, they go to teach at one of our high schools. It's a small group of six or seven of our folks who are dedicated every week to teaching some of the youth at the high school about values and life skills. How are we doing? We're trying to organize a ministry around serving an occasional brunch. <laughs> yeah, brunch, you heard me right. To our community. I mean, Christmas Eve morning, we are going to have a little gathering here with some food. So those of you who love that this summer, come back Christmas Eve morning and join us for coffee, croissants, and Christmas carols. But... How are we going to do that where we're not always expecting them to come here, but that we can go out there? Well, if you're interested in learning more about that, let me know, because we've got a small group that's beginning to kind of think about what it would look like to serve brunch to the community. We call it Brunch Church. So how are we doing, friends? How, how are we doing? As a church? As a body? And what if God isn't so interested in our wealth? And our money? There's some freedom in that, isn't there? That maybe God is more interested in our hearts <laughs> than our wallets? are we doing? That's the question I want to ask. And maybe in asking the question, I have to be a little more direct. How are you doing? How am I doing? Well, that's a long ways from the prosperity gospel. But I think it fits for us today. If there is a wealth that we have been entrusted with that doesn't belong to us. It is the wealth that we have received from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who achieved it for us on the cross. If you're willing to live with that question with me, I invite you to join me in a prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, this man who went on a long journey. And it's been a long time, Lord. And so as we 
we journey ourselves through our lives, Lord, help us to remember that you have entrusted us with some phenomenal gifts. Gifts that are not intended to be buried. Not to be worried about whether we're sharing them right or not. But help us just to be lavish like you were in showering people with forgiveness and grace and love. And where we can't do that, Lord, please change our hearts. Open us up to your Holy Spirit that we might live as you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray that we might be called good and faithful servants. Amen.